Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. In this season, we are talking about the book of John and what it means for our lives to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining me and Aaron in conversation today are Amanda LaDuke and Angie Horn, and we're glad to have the two of you with us today. And Amanda, you're going to start by telling us a little bit about how you and Angie know one another. So Angie and I have been close friends for 20 years. I moved here for nursing school in 2003, not knowing a single soul. Before I moved here, I prayed and asked God if he would give me one person in Augusta who would encourage me in my faith and help me know him more deeply. Well, he's given me many somebodies who have done that, but I met Angie within the first couple of days of moving to Augusta, and she's been doing that ever since for 20 years, very faithfully. She has mentored me. We've lived together, we've been in each other's weddings, and we've walked through a lot of life together and a lot of hard things, and we've studied and taught God's Word together. And 20 years later, we're in a group together studying God's Word. God has been so kind to me through this friend. She is so wise and compassionate and loyal and always, always points me to Jesus. I could probably take the whole 30 minutes of this podcast telling you about the ways Angie has impacted my life, but we have other things to talk about today, (laughs) so I'll stop there. And I need to stop crying. Oh, it was beautiful. <laughs> what a friend. She is. Me too. This is not a good sign for things to come if I'm... Well, tears all around. I love it. Already. Well, you all brought your tissues in anticipation. <laughs> and and I yes. love it. And I wish people could see you and not just hear you. Just the tears of gratefulness mm-hmm. for each other. And that is a really special thing when you have friendships that span those years and draw you closer to the Lord the whole time. It's It's not something you can just conjure up. It really is a gift. So I love that. All right. Well, we're going to move from the sentimental moment to our first things first question, which is also kind of sentimental, I guess. And it is, who was the first person for whom you cared more about their well-being than your own? And Amanda, why don't you kick us off? You can tell us a little bit about yourself, even though you've been on the podcast a while back. Give us another brief introduction to yourself and go ahead and answer the question at the same time. I am Amanda LaDuke, and I've been married to my husband, Mark, for almost 13 years. We have three children who are nine, six, and three years old. We are currently nearing the end of a pretty involved home renovation, so my day-to-day life right now looks like caring for my children as well as surviving and sometimes participating in the home projects that Mark is mostly doing. As I was thinking about this question, I wanted to have a better answer for this or something more profound or early on, but I think that the first person that I cared more about their well-being than my own was my first child. I really tried to think about something earlier on before that, um, but honestly just couldn't come up with anything. But having someone who's so vulnerable Mm. depending on me for their whole life, that's that's sort of when I realized that I cared more about his well-being Mm. than my own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Were you doing home renovations the last time you were on the podcast? I was, but okay. it was a different home renovation. Oh, yeah, okay. so like, that was wow, a, those are really long. That okay. was a different project, and now we're doing something else. Okay, so. same home though. Same home, different, just different area of the home. Gotcha. Home renos are a mixed bag. Yes, very much so. The end product will be worth it, though, right? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> That's what keeps you going. <laughs> Uh, My name is Angie Horn, and I am married to my husband, Kevin. Uh, This year, we will celebrate our 13th anniversary also. We got engaged a few months apart and got married a few months apart. That's great. Uh, We have two daughters. Uh, Our oldest, Carter, is 10 and is in the fifth grade. And our youngest, Sadie Kate, is about to be seven in just a couple of weeks and is in the first grade. 
I'm a nurse by training, but have been uh, home with our girls for the past several years. We also have Kevin's brother, Scott, in our home. Uh, He has some significant physical and neurological disabilities, and we brought him to live with us a little over a year and a half ago and have become his primary caregivers. So Mm. that's our home situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the first things first question, I am an overthinker. So this was a struggle for me to try to (laughs) figure out. But I kept coming back to this really um, particular memory with my grandmother. She lived in our home all throughout my growing up years. So she was a very influential and consistent part of life. Uh, Most days we would ride out to the family farm to do work, take care of animals. Uh, Most of those days she would make sure and stop that I could get an orange Fanta and a Snickers candy bar. So that endeared her to me even more. But on this particular uh, day, we're riding out to the farm on this uh, little country red dirt road in South Georgia. And she just abruptly stops in the middle of the road and then starts to pull up and pull back and pull up and pull back. And I'm so confused as to what's going on. And she explains that there is a really large rattlesnake in the road. So she is her pulling forward and pulling back is this effort to try to kill the snake. Oh, wow. So she gets out of the car to see that that didn't happen. And she pulls from the back seat her trusty hoe, which her garden tool that she always kept handy, I guess, for situations like that, <laughs> and is going to finish the job. Oh, my word. And I just remember having this really tangible fear, but it wasn't fear for my safety because I was in the car. It was fear for her, for mm-hmm. what if something happens to her? She was such an integral part of my life. And so I began to try to get out of the car to go and rescue her in my child mind. Oh, boy. And that did not go well. She, as the adult, was trying to protect me and make sure I stayed in the car. And she finished the job. Mm-hmm. But it was mm-hmm. that first memory, tangible memory that I have of really caring about someone else's safety above my own, wanting to protect her and not worrying about myself. Yeah. I hope you got a, a rattlesnake belt out of that. Well, here's the sad part is I already had one. Oh, yes. So of course you did. I love that. That's another whole story about growing up in South Georgia. Oh, but my word. Yes. I feel so connected to both of y'all's stories. Obviously, that first kid, groundbreaking, just a different kind of love, different than your spouse love. Like your spouse is the man, like he's protecting you probably more. You maybe feel that more than, you know, protection over him. So definitely the kid, like that first kid is special. But I have a similar story to you, Angie, is I remember my granddad dying, who was a very dear figure in my life. Similar, we live very close to my grandparents. Also, they treated us to one salty snack one sweet snack after school every day Mm. so just you know the snacks you know they reel you in with the snacks (laughs) and just such sweet memories of being at their house like watching the sound of music like so many good memories there so when I I remember when he died I was actually little Bo Peep (laughs) in a play and uh, I believe first grade somewhere along in those lines and I remember he died I felt very sad for my mom and my grandmother just feeling that um that love for him and that loss for me and also just knowing that that was such a big loss for my grandmother too so you know similar thing like just wanted to protect them and care for them even though it's like I'm a little kid there's nothing that I can really offer in that situation but definitely like that's a tender connection yeah it is hard to pick just one moment because I think as we become or as we get older, anyway, I'm more aware of what it would mean to really care about somebody more than myself. And it seems like a big ass. So when I look back through my life, I think, well, I don't know if I really did. 
But at the same time, we do have those as children, those um, desires to protect people who have loved us well, whether it be our parents or our grandparent. And then marriage, you know, to me, marriage is like you said, he's kind of the man, but then also marriage offers me something, you know, and so I do care about your well-being. But I also would really like you to help my well-being and growing (laughs) through what that means. And of course, as you go through marriage longer, you understand more and more of that. But then what I was thinking of is my first child, too, because it is maybe one of those first times when he didn't have really anything to offer me, Mm -hmm. that tiny little baby. But you do just have this impulse, like, I will do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. You know, I have this just this fierce desire to nurture, protect, give myself to you. And it's just innate. I guess really is what it felt like. Like I didn't have to give it much thought. I didn't have to drum it up. I didn't have to work for it. It was just there. And I I do love that as um, the fact that we're created, that we believe that we're created in God's image, that God really is a relational being and that we are created to care about one another and to care about one another sacrificially. And you see that reflected all throughout the world. We really do evidence the fact that we have a relational creator in the ways that we care for and um, long to give ourselves to other people. But at the same time, we are broken image bearers and we know what it is to be able to do that to some extent and then kind of bump up against limitations. So the same sweet little baby infant that I just knew I would protect with all my heart, with all my soul, with my whole life is the same one that I felt like I, I really, if I do not walk out of this room with you as a toddler, I am going to lose my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say something or do something that I regret. And I have this immense emotional, I just going to have to say anger, you know, to this one that I have said, I will love you and serve you and whatever. And you think you have this dual thing going on in your heart. When I bump up to certain things that are challenged or taken away from me that I haven't anticipated, that I haven't planned for, that I'm not really on board with, then it's very hard um, to care about somebody more than I care about myself. And Mm -hmm. today we're going to be looking at a passage in John, um, John 3, verses 1 through 21. And if you're listening and you haven't read these verses yet, I strongly encourage you to hit the pause button and read them now because you'll get so much more from our discussion if you've read the verses for yourself. And what we're going to be talking about today is a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus with questions and found it difficult to receive what Jesus was telling him because it went against things that he so highly valued, things he thought he understood, things he thought he knew, things and ways that he thought life and religion should work. And Jesus challenged some of that, and it was hard for Nicodemus to accept that and then to hear from Jesus what Jesus was actually saying. So we are going to get to that in a a minute, but just a brief little overview. Last time you listened, we were talking with Mike and Sandra Heron about the intro to John, beautiful prologue, introducing Jesus, telling us that John's main purpose in writing his book was so that as readers, we could understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and by understanding who he is, that we would believe, and that by believing, we would experience life. And that is the whole purpose of John's book. We've moved, if you were reading along, you get to the introduction, and then you start to see Another witness come on the scene, John the Baptist, pointing people to Jesus. Jesus begins to call his disciples. He begins to do his first few signs. He goes to Jerusalem during the Passover. He cleanses the temple. Basically, he's becoming a more prominent figure. He's showing these things of who he is, what he's inaugurating, what he's about. 
and people are beginning to ask questions. Some people are beginning to believe the things that they see and responding to Jesus with that sort of belief of what he said about himself up to this point. And some people are really starting to question. And primarily those people are the religious leaders of the day. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? What is going on here? What is this new figure that has arrived on the scene that we're unfamiliar with? And we're the ones that are the experts, right, in the law. And Nicodemus is that sort of man. He comes to Jesus at night and he has some questions. And I think he's got a mix. He really wants to know. And yet he really has some ways of thinking that are about to be challenged. So that's where we are in the text. And I would love to know from y'all what in particular surprised or interested you in this passage. One of the things that is really interesting to me in this passage, this call that Jesus gives to Nicodemus and ultimately the call that he gives to anyone that would follow him, that you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. That term born again, Mm -hmm. um, particularly in our American culture, has been made a descriptor that really means more a churched person or sometimes a very moral person or sometimes a person uh, that's had a very emotional spiritual experience or even a person that just aligns themselves politically with conservative ideas. But none of those things accurately describe the new birth that Jesus is talking about, this supernatural spirit-led regeneration of a human heart, mind, body, and soul. It's like so many other things that the true meaning can get blurred by the Mm -hmm. culture that we're in. Mm -hmm. I love that you would point that out and make that distinction because we do tend to read a text and overlay what our definition of that would be on what Jesus is actually saying. And he's not saying those things that you're describing. He is saying that something that to Nicodemus is like, what? Born again, because he goes on to say, am I supposed to go back in my, what, my womb and come out again? Yeah. And I don't, you know, I, I guess he's being a little facetious, maybe, but he just is totally flummoxed by mm-hmm. why Jesus would say that. And, you know, Jesus isn't just pulling that out of the blue. He is referring to a specific passage in Ezekiel where it is talking about that renewal through water and the spirit, repentance and life. But it is only something that God does. It's not something that man does. And that would have been a unique thought to Nicodemus as a religious ruler in that day who would have his understanding of the law and his way of keeping it, I don't think would have made room to understand that God was going is the only one that could bring about that type of regeneration and new life apart from man, man's effort, man's will. Um, one thing that I noticed is just the one thing that surprised me was just the fact that Nicodemus came at all. Mm. You know, like he had power and position. He knew a lot, but there was something about Jesus that drew him. Jesus drew him. Yeah. Like he draws all of us. Mm -hmm. And we learn from Nicodemus's first words that he's noticed something different or they, he comes and says, we know, you know, that um, he's noticed something that maybe is different from all the other great rabbis. Anyway, I think the other thing that I would say that um, surprises me or just Jesus's answers surprise me. I've yeah. studied the book of John many times with Angie and with others. And I think that his answers are just really surprising to me. And I'm always a little bit wondering, piecing that together as I'm thinking through how he answered that way. Um, so his answers are surprising to me. Why do you think they're surprising to you? I think they're surprising because in some ways they're not even a direct answer to a question. You know, Jesus answers the true need 
And it's not, it doesn't seem to flow logically, this question, this answer, this question, this answer. Jesus has like Jesus's agenda. Mm-hmm. And so he's coming to speak the truth, but it, it happens in a way that doesn't seem really natural. And so it, it feels surprising the way that yeah. he answers. Well, I love that because you said, you know, he is exposing a need or he's pulling Mm -hmm. out a need. And so Nicodemus thinks he has one question that needs to be answered this way and one question that needs to be answered this way. But the Mm -hmm. fact that Jesus doesn't answer him according to his expectation or Mm -hmm. what he even thinks is coming, he is pulling out that final need that he addresses in that final question. You know, Mm -hmm. nobody has ever ascended or descended except for the Son of Man. And just as the serpent was raised up, he's saying essentially Unless you believe and and need a crucified Savior, I mean that's what you need to believe in. And and, and Nicodemus wasn't coming. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like with any expectation of that kind of answer. Amber, I love how earlier when you were setting this up, you were calling our God a relational Creator, mm-hmm. and that's what I see in John chapter three is that He knows where Nicodemus is at, and He is as one of you said. I think I don't remember Amanda, maybe that you said He is drawing us, and He's drawing Nicodemus. He's using language that He would have known as the leader of the Hebrew people. He would have known Son of Man, like he would have hyperlinked to Daniel 7 right away. And he would have known, oh, he's talking about the one that's coming to bring God's kingdom. And Jesus is using that language. The kingdom of God is here. And so I think at that point, like Nicodemus maybe is even waking up to what Jesus is saying. And he's using already that, you know, tabernacle and temple language, like my presence is at the center. And Nicodemus would have known that Jesus our God's presence, Yahweh's presence had always been at the center of his people in the tabernacle and in the temple that would have been important to him. And that's where we find forgiveness of sins. And I think that's what Nicodemus is looking for when he's coming to Jesus. And that that part where he talks about the serpent, I think so many of us, like Angie, you were talking about early how we have these weird things around the born again language. And I love even the fact that you brought out, like it even has political jargon tied to it. Like, oh my gosh, how did we get there? But the serpent story, I don't know. I think most of us, if we grew up in church, like we've kind of heard that. We kind of like have a reference point for it, but we it feels mysterious, I think, mm-hmm. to most of us. But I was doing just a little more reading and meditating over that. And it is a story that Nicodemus would have had, like that would have been in his wheelhouse. He would have known that is that these Exodus people, like we're in the book of Numbers and the rebellion is mounting. Like they've already, you know, rebelled against God. They've rebelled against Moses. We see the apostasy and like only Caleb and Joshua are going to get to go to the promised land. So we've seen this, the rebellion's mounting. And then he brings out the bronze serpent as both the curse like it's mm-hmm. the judgment against the apostasy but it's also the healing and I think Jesus is already like painting that picture like I'm bringing judgment against your unbelief against your rejection of me but I'm also bringing healing like mm-hmm. look upon me and find healing mm-hmm. and I think Nicodemus would have known that story about the bronze serpent where it was both the curse and the healing and he's maybe I think waking up to that he's hearing Jesus say like I'm that person. I'm the person that is coming to bring the judgment. I'm also that person that's coming to bring you healing. And that is just, I feel like it's such love and mercy there that we see just consistent with Jesus' character, consistent with God's character throughout the entirety of the Bible. And it's just remarkable. I love that you summarize it that way, because if you go towards the end of the passage and right after the verse that everybody knows you know, the most, which is for God to love the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
It goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But then it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Mm -hmm. son of God. And so just to hear you say that, that the serpent was the judgment and yet the serpent was the salvation. I mean, it was testifying. God was testifying to them about their rebellion. Mm -hmm. And in the face of Jesus, Mm -hmm. your rebellion becomes very apparent. Mm -hmm. And yet in that testifying, in that judgment, he was also providing that salvation. I had never made that connection. Well, and I think it's so easy for Nicodemus to see it in the post-exilic period of Exodus. Like he knows that story. Like he can't maybe see it in himself yet, but he knows the people as they're in the wilderness he knows that's what that's about, the heaping rebellion, their unbelief, they're shaking their fist at God, and then him showing them mercy. And yeah. Jesus is like, look, man, this is you. Yeah. Turn to me, and I will give you mercy, too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so as we're thinking about how Nicodemus and Jesus are interacting, um, let's think about how Nicodemus responds to Jesus, and what do his responses and actions teach you about your own? So as I studied this passage this week, I noticed that Nicodemus doesn't come to Jesus with a question at first. He comes to yeah. Jesus telling him what he knows. He mm-hmm. says, we know. He's coming what what they know. Um, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. And behind that, I think that there is a question in his heart, but his first approach is to tell Jesus what he knows mm-hmm. about him. And I wonder how many times I have done that. But then Jesus' response to him causes him to be curious. And maybe for the first time, I don't know, but as a Pharisee and part of the Jewish ruling council, he was highly educated, a teacher of the law. And I think it's hard for me, but I think it's hard to be curious when you know everything or when you think that you do. But Jesus' words to Nicodemus stump him. He doesn't understand, but he doesn't dismiss Jesus or walk away. Um, He asks more questions. And when I think about my own pattern of approach and response to Jesus, I wonder if for many years I haven't been curious. Maybe as someone who has grown up in the church, I've been too confident in my knowledge or my presupposed knowledge sometimes of God and maybe have missed the opportunity to be humbly curious about the things of God. Um, And I'd like to be more like that. Yeah, I think that some of the um, deconstruction movement is around that, that you see people that have maybe gravitated toward church, maybe because their parents or culture have informed that. But as you get an adult, you're making your faith your own. So I think that there is a baseline curiosity that we do have to keep toward the Lord. Like, of course, we don't know the treasures that he has. With We can't. There's no way that we're ever going to absorb that in our lifetime. But I think it is what you're talking about, that curiosity and humility. Like there's a humility that comes with curiosity that we don't know everything and we're coming asking, we want to know, and he's faithful to reveal it to us. And when you bring up deconstruction, I appreciate that because I know those listening, we probably have different experiences or thoughts that come to our mind when we hear that word, some positive and some probably negative. And, but I think it's a helpful thing to bring up because What you mean by deconstruction is the ability to work through something that you have always supposed and find out if the foundation is strong and real and if that's really what's holding it up. It's not deconstruction for deconstruction's sake, which has its own element of pride. I think that I'm going to tear apart all these ideas and come to an understanding of what I value and what I think, supposing that when I get to the root of that, that I will find something good versus a a humility, kind of what you're saying, Amanda, if you come to Jesus with questions, 
He answers them. Like questions are good. Mm -hmm. The problem is the presuppositions. Let me tell you what I know. And deconstruction can go either way. You Mm -hmm. can come with legitimate Mm -hmm. questions that Jesus answers, or you can come saying, let me tell you what I know. And I'm going to pull this thing down and burn the house down. Or I'm going to do some home renovations and find out what's underneath here. Yeah. What the foundation is and build on that. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the Lord, I love that. Yeah. He answers, he answers Nicodemus. And not only does he answer him, he tells him, Nicodemus doesn't even realize he has questions. And don't you love that about the Lord? Like we come to him with the things that are holding us up and we think that's what he, we need him to answer. But lo and behold, he answers something so much deeper and so much richer and gives us more than we even anticipated. And I love that about several people's what I guess you could call a deconstruction journey, that they come away with an understanding of who the Lord is that they didn't even know they needed. Mm -hmm. And um, there's something pretty sweet about that. One thing that I noticed uh, kind of centers around verse nine, Uh, Nicodemus has just heard from Jesus in the preceding verses that he must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And verse nine, Nicodemus just says, how can these things be? Um, he just doesn't understand his whole concept of what he's based his life on, of what he's based his spiritual security on, uh, has just been turned upside down. And as Jesus says, yes, even though you have all these things that you think qualify you and entitle you to be part of the kingdom of God, they don't. And from that point on, Nicodemus, as far as we know, doesn't say anything, at least not in this passage. I don't know what his mindset was. I don't know what his heart was. But I think how often for myself, when the Lord shows me a part of my life where my security or my confidence is misplaced or my perspective is wrong or my understanding on an issue or situation is wrong. In those situations, I don't need to try to keep telling Jesus all that I know to somehow justify my position that I've held or that I'm still holding on to. I need to be quiet before him. I need to hear from him. I need to know What does he say? I need to take out my opinion, my perspective, sometimes even sift through past training or teaching that I've had and really hold them up and question, does this fall in line with what Jesus says? Does this fall in line with who he's called me to be and does it line up with the word? Like we've said, John's whole intent on writing this book is so that his readers can see Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and believe. So each passage, everything he says in some way is accomplishing that goal. So what about this passage in particular helped you in your belief as Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? I have a couple of thoughts. Um, First, as I studied this passage, I was reminded of Hebrews 4.12, which says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I think because this passage is so familiar, you know, the most familiar verse probably in the world is in this passage, um, that when there are those portions of scripture that we've been exposed to more that we feel familiar with, it's easy to just kind of gloss over those parts and maybe not dig into them as deeply, maybe assume that we understand. And I just continue to see the longer that I walk with the Lord that his word just becomes richer and deeper with new understanding that's gleaned as I study the word individually and with others as I encounter 
especially the hard or messy or broken circumstances in my life and the lives of those I'm walking alongside of, I just see more of Jesus and then long for more of Jesus. And it's amazing to see in this passage, not just the call that Jesus gives that we must be born again, this non-negotiable necessity in order to see the kingdom of God, but the fact that I can be born again, even though I'm broken and dead in my sin. It's just miraculous when I think God and his design from the foundations of the earth, his plan to rescue me out of love, out of care, out of longing to have a restored relationship with me. That's just mind blowing. And the deep, deep love of Jesus is overwhelming. And ultimately, that leads me to worship and it leaves me with a greater desire to share with others what he's doing and who he is. I love that because not only do you see the need you know, you must, but you see the supply. Mm. He gave his only son yes. so that you can be born again. So good, Angie. I think kind of along with that, um, this passage furthered my belief in Jesus as the Christ, as I reflected on the reality that Jesus knew what Nicodemus really needed, that, you know, when he came and he didn't really have the specific question, Jesus knew his heart. And so only Jesus could know that. And, you know, it was not just in a conversation with another man. Jesus knew his heart and knew what he really needed. He knew what was behind the statement. He knew what was behind his curious questions. Jesus knew his heart and that Nicodemus did not need any more knowledge about God in that moment. What he needed most, and we always can get more knowledge about God, but that what he needed most was to be transformed by God, by Jesus in that conversation and to be completely reborn, start over, new heart, you know, he needed it. And Jesus turns upside down what it means to truly know God and be a part of his kingdom in that conversation. It's not what you have plus more or your education plus a little bit of me or your power plus this, that he he didn't need a touch up. He needed new life. And that's what I need. That's what we all need. And that's the supply. That's what Jesus was there to give him and to offer him, to hold out for him in that moment was the new life that he really needed. And he knew that's what he needed. And he knew he was the source of that for him. Well, and you're not even just supposing that he knew what was in his heart because of the questions or the way he responds to him. But you can see that if you just backtrack a couple mm. verses where right. it talks about the fact that people are trying to figure out who Jesus is, right? Um, but he's not fully entrusting themself, himself to them. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need their testimony to mm-hmm. say who he is. He knows who he is. And he also knows um, what's inside of a man. Mm-hmm. And it says that right before he gets into this passage and you see he does. He knows mm-hmm. what's inside. Mm-hmm. He knows the need. He knows that he is the, the supply and that is what he offers. Yeah, these are such uh, rich comments. I love just sitting around the table and meditating on what it is that the Lord is up to in y'all's lives. And I think here I read this passage, like you said, Angie, just super familiar passage. And it is easy to skim it over and be like, man, I've been hearing about this since, you know, 1990. <laughs> Or whatever, you know, like a really long time. Um, So I think when we look at it and see this is a story about unbelief, and it's a story about a deliverer, a deliverer that's brought his presence to us in a real in a tangible way, and also not just his presence for us to glory in, which is glorious in that when we are not in fellowship with him and that our our hearts should be broken and our hearts should be broken for those that don't know of his presence. And we should be actively pursuing that, which obviously John gets into. 
But I, I love the part that he's already talking about early in his ministry, like the kingdom of God is here. Like I'm bringing God's space to earth as it was intended since the garden. And this is how it should have been. I'm bringing that kingdom, like God's kingdomship, his ruler. I am king. I'm coming. I'm here. And I think that it challenges me to live in such a way that is worthy of that. To live as a person that knows that God's kingdom is come, has come, and it is coming. And obviously we see just the how we are riddled with sin and there's brokenness all around us. And so sometimes I think it is hard to believe that God's kingdom has come. And I think that it just pushes me um, once again, like, Lord, show me what is true. Show me what is real. Help me to believe that your kingdom has come. Help me to willingly and gratefully participate in bringing your kingdom about that you are a God of new creation. And I want to be a part of that. And so, Angie, what you're talking about, just worship. Like, I think once again, just lands us at worship. Like, Lord, you're worthy. Give me the clarity about how to move forward in a way that shows that you have rescued and redeemed me and that you are on the move here on this world right now. I think, you know, that's how I could see that text moving in my life. What about you guys? How do y'all see, what are the implications of this John 3 text as you think about that? Like, how does this impact our day-to-day life? I think for me, one thing that I noticed was just as we were talking about Jesus' surprising answers to the questions, I think I'd like to more humbly receive Jesus' answers to both the known and unknown questions in my heart, things that maybe I'm not even aware of that I have questions about, maybe like Nicodemus, um, and allow him to inform and shape all the realms of my life, marriage, parenting, how to teach Sunday school to kindergartners <laughs> when, I, when I do that a couple times a month, or um, how I think about and interact with people who are not like me, or how I approach Bible study or worship or community, how we make decisions as a family. Just, I don't know, coming to Jesus humbly with my questions and letting him answer them and receiving his answers, even if they're surprising or different than I expected. And then I think the other thing, just that we've been talking about the deep, deep love of Jesus, the love of God for the whole world that he would send his son, just that very familiar verse. I just think that I just want to receive and give the love of God more freely, but just to my own heart, sometimes I have a hard time receiving the fact that he He loves me. He really loves me. And I want to receive that. And then in turn, freely give that to others the way that Jesus is here offering himself, you know, as he's talking about the serpent being lifted up and um, the son that God has given, it's himself. And he's standing there in this conversation. I just can't imagine standing there with Jesus, him looking at me and talking about his love and his provision for me. And um, I don't know, I just, I want to live in that and receive that and then give it freely. Mm, I love that. Even just thinking about how Christ is that serpent, like he's taken on yeah. our unbelief yeah. and he is born our, the fullness of our sin, including our unbelief so that we might be free. One specific implication um, in my life relates to our girls. Of course, um, I, like all of you, long for my children to know Jesus in a deep way and to walk with him for a lifetime. I think as we see in this passage, Nicodemus, who has so much religious knowledge and so much understanding, and yet he has completely missed Jesus. So I think of how we parent our girls, how we shepherd their hearts, and it's really given me so much freedom. I know that, of course, I want them to have a solid biblical foundation, um, especially because I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I want that for them. But 
I'm okay if they don't ever win a Bible sword drill. Mm -hmm. I'm okay (laughs) if they don't ever memorize every catechism question. What I pray that they're getting in our home and what we want them to ultimately launch into the world with is an absolute clear and unshakable understanding of God's love for them, Mm. that he created them, that he sees them in their good and in their brokenness, that he cares for them no matter what their circumstances might look like or feel like, that he promises that he will never leave them or forsake them. I hope that there are many, many grooves of truth and love that ultimately are cut deeply into their hearts and their lives that help them to understand the gospel in a deep way, that helps them to understand what it looks like to love and serve and give their lives away for the kingdom for eternal purposes. I want them to have a foundation of truth, but I don't want that truth to merely be an intellectual knowledge of facts and understanding. I want that truth to be coupled with this unshakable certainty that Jesus loves them no matter what. And ultimately, I know that only he could do that. Only his spirit at work in their lives can do that. But that's a very specific thing that I feel like we try to think through and pray through and be aware of as we're parenting. Both of those answers uh, resonate with me. First one, Angie, just you talking about that with our children. And I think about my boys growing up in the church. Their dad's a pastor. I wouldn't trade that for the world. And by God's grace, they love that and respect that. They've grown up in a church that's loved them well. They have a love for the church. By God's grace, that's not everybody's story, but it happens to be theirs. They've Mm -hmm. done private Christian school, which by God's grace, has been a good experience. That's not everybody's story, but it has been for them. And of course, the danger could be as a parent to think, all right, they're in the church. They love the church. They've been in this Christian environment. They've been discipled. Uh, my oldest is going to college. Check, check, check. You should be good. You know. And I have been thinking recently, I don't want to devalue those things. And even think about Nicodemus, what he learned, the law, the scriptures, they're, they're not invaluable. It wasn't that he was learning something worthless. Mm -hmm. There's so much worth in that. It's that it had led him to the wrong conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so I think with our kiddos, you know, the danger would be that your church, your schooling, your whatever, your being raised as a Christian has led you to the conclusion that you don't need Jesus. I mean, that's really the conclusion. Nicodemus doesn't know that that's where he is at, but it is Mm -hmm. like, there is no need, there is no supply. And I think Mm -hmm. as parents, the temptation is to so raise our children that they don't get to the point where they recognize I'm broken. And unless, even though I have all of these great things, I'm still broken. Mm -hmm. And unless the savior comes in and redeems me, rescues me, does that saving work for me. I I don't have a hope. And I think, can I teach my children that in the midst of what is a rich, rich blessing of grace in their life? I don't want to discount that, but I don't want it it to lead them to the wrong conclusion either. So I resonated with that. And then just Amanda, what you're saying, it just keeps sticking out to me. Like, do I I just go to the Lord with statements? I don't want questions. Questions take time. Mm -hmm. Questions are not efficient. I don't have time for questions. I'd like answers now. And I even think just doing this role here at the church right now where there's some teaching involved and there's podcast and there's preparation and I get into the scriptures and I feel like I need to come away with something that I can share. It's part of my quote unquote job. Even just as you were saying that, I was like, Lord, do I cut out time 
to continually just receive and not think, how am I going to give that? How am I going to do that? What am I going to do with that? But can I just come and receive from you instead of constantly coming, thinking, okay, I know this, I know this, I know this, but just that receiving. And when that receiving is lacking, I know the difference. That's super helpful. Amanda and Angie, thank you both for being with us today. Listeners, we hope that you'll join us again next week. Clayton McKenzie-Pede will be joining us to talk about John 4 next week and what it means that Jesus is the living water for all who thirst. We hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while she sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings when comforts are declining he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after the rain 